Welcome to Six Degrees of Syllabus, a podcast where we talk with artists, art collectors, advisors, museum directors, and curators to learn firsthand how the art world operates and how each participant uniquely addresses vital issues of our time. This week, John talks with New York-based artist Meg Lipke. Meg received her BFA from the University of Vermont in Burlington, Vermont, and her MFA in painting from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. She's had solo exhibitions at Broadway Gallery in New York City, Gold Scopophilia in Montclair, New Jersey, Lane Meyer Projects in Denver, Colorado, Freight and Volume in New York City, and Jeff Bailey Gallery in Hudson, New York. She's been included in numerous group exhibitions, including shows at the College of St. Rose in Albany, New York, Gold Montclair in Montclair, New Jersey, Mark's Housing Gallery of Art at Concordia University in Nebraska, Catherine Schultz Gallery at the Cambridge Art Association in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Gallery MR80 in Paris, France, University at Buffalo Art Galleries in Buffalo, New York, and Jeff Bailey Gallery in Hudson, New York, among many others. Her work has been featured in Two Coats of Paint, Art Forum, the Philadelphia Inquirer, The New Yorker, and The Brooklyn Rail. Meg talks with John via Zoom from her home in upstate New York. Hi, John. Hi, Hi Meg. <laughs> so uh, it's great to see you. Um, it's been a, a long year, but you've really used this time to be in the studio and uh, to produce an immense new body of work. Um, I got to see your show at Broadway Gallery on the very last day, which was really meaningful. And I was so impressed with, uh, you know, the kind of evolution of your work, the progress of your work. Um, I thought uh, the gallery is great. Broadway is a new gallery down in Tribeca. The uh, founder, director, Pascal, uh, did an incredible job of putting your show together. Uh, they got great press. Um, you know, I loved what the New Yorker wrote, what the Brooklyn Rail wrote. Anyway, it was just a really uh, fantastic experience. Um, I discovered your work, I believe it was about nine years ago. And I was at that time looking at a lot of textile work, artists like Robin Kang, who I've worked with a little bit, who is very um, influenced or uh, thinks about the relationship of technology and textile and the history of weaving. Um, there's other artists like Aaron Riley that are translating this uh, kind of hop online engagement, online sexuality with the medium of traditional weaving, which is really interesting. Um, but your work stood out to me because of its real like handmade quality and it seemed like a real commitment to these uh, techniques that we would associate with the kind of history of sewing and maybe even quilt making coming from that sort of very um, grassroots tradition. Um, and then you've continued that by, um, you know, really taking the object and making it into something unique. And 
Um, I think in the show, all of those ideas of merging painting, sculpture, and textile really came together very well. So uh, congratulations on that. Um, one thing that I've also liked about getting to know you and your work over the years is everything feels very organic. The kinds of ideas you pursue, the materials you use, the people you work with um, has a very organic quality to it. Um, you're also a, a great community person and I think one senses that in the work somehow. Uh, so I thought it'd be great to start our conversation today by hearing a little bit more about your growing up years, uh, your grandparents who were from the UK, um, and then your family's history, both to art and then specifically uh, to textile. Awesome. Okay, thank you. It's so nice to be here. That was such a great introduction. Um, yeah, so there's, um, gosh, there's a lot we can talk about. Uh, my, um, my mother was, uh, is an immigrant. She came um, to the United States to study from England um, for graduate work uh, in art history. And she came from a family that um, lived in Northern England where um, the, the sort of history of um, cotton um, processing in, um, in Great Britain was located um, in Manchester. And uh, her father, whose name was Fred Hall, inherited a mill that his grandfather or great-grandfather had begun. Um, it was a mill that was used for a really specific part of cotton yarn production, cotton for weaving specifically. And um, it was um, it was located in a section of Manchester, which was known for the mill industry. Um, and um, they made yarns uh, that were um, mercerized, which means that the mill had different machines that wound together two different kinds of cotton mm. to create one kind of yarn. So um, they created boucle yarns, um, there were yarns that had little flecks of um, uh, different materials in them. Um, and then there were straight up sort of linen yarns, cotton yarns. Um, and it was also a mill that contained a dye house. So my mother and her sister um, both have memories of going to work with their father at the mill. Um, and on their school vacations, going and working in the dye house and getting to know some of the people who worked at the mill. Um, before my mother left home to pursue graduate study, um, the, the cotton industry in the north of England was really collapsing. Um, it was being outsourced to different countries 
and the mill was um, was bought out by Americans, actually. Mm. Um, and this, because the mill had been in the family for so for so long, um, and my grandfather had become used to that being part of his identity. Um, I think there was a sort of um, embarrassment that it had um, gone under and uh, through no fault of his own. Um, and, but he, from that point onward, had all of the uh, surplus yarns brought back to his house, um, which was um, had been a lovely house with a lovely garden, um, but it became a warehouse um, in addition to being the family home. So the way that I grew up when I visited England, um, which I did every summer and um, during my parents' sabbaticals from the universities they taught at, um, in which we would maybe live in England for a year or nine months. Um, the way that I knew that house was um, as a warehouse where you would walk through every room and every room would be filled with boxes of different colored yarns. Um, and uh, we would um, create the sample cards so that my grandfather could continue to send out samples of the yarns that he had available to um, weavers and people in the industry, and he could continue running the business from home. Um, so uh, it did not seem strange to me as a child to make these cards, wind these cards with different colored yarns, or to be sitting in a living room and watching television and sort of having all of these um, great big spools and bobbins of yarns um, being around. It was sort of um, a, a strange scale for sure, because you often couldn't tell what was in a room. For example, I remember knowing that the piano was in a corner of um, a living room, but you couldn't see it. You had to find the way sort of through the maze of boxes um, to find it. Um, and of course, all of this seemed, you know, probably uh, uh, much more enveloping as a child. Um, uh, but it was, um, you know, I, th I think that, that that history, that tactile history of, of um, being around all of the yarns and winding with them. Um, my grandmother made beautiful objects out of the yarns in a craft tradition. Um, you know, using what was around her to make uh, to make an, an object of um, of beauty, um, and so I think all of that history has really played into my work, um, and also into my mother's work. My mother is also an artist. I feel like I should stop there because I can I can keep on going about this, but maybe uh, we want to direct the the um, conversation a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I really love hearing more detail about that history with textile. And then also growing up in this art-saturated family, I'm sure had a big impact on your work. And then when you went into college and grad school, um, you were pursuing art 
um, I believe mostly as a painter at that time? Yeah. Yes. I, um, I knew really early on that I wanted to be an artist. I mean, I, I, um, I remember that I filled notebooks with drawings. Um, and because my parents were both in um, art history and academic settings, and in addition, my mother was an artist um, and my father worked um, in art history with folk art. So anything my brother and I made was was highly valued by our parents, which yeah. was lovely, lovely. Um, and because of their um, positions as art historians, they were constantly bringing my brother and I to museums. So I, I want to acknowledge what an incredibly privileged um, childhood that was and how much we took it for granted. Um, we were often moaning um, and complaining and eye rolling um, on trips to France when you know we were going to go see um, Chartres you know, or we were in the Louvre and um, we just couldn't wait to get out of there. And now I think it's just absolutely marvelous that we grew up that way. Yeah. Um, but I did have a lot of exposure. And so um, when I was a teenager, um, I knew that I wanted to go to, um, to study art. And as a high school student, I took some um, a college course in um, printmaking at the University of Vermont. And I also was able to attend a very serious um, institute in the summer um, that was on a college campus for um, talented high school students. Um, and we were able to do uh, pursue courses in painting and electronic music, which was a new um, a new media form <laughs> and also poetry, you know, so I really found a sort of community of artists early. I went to Cornell for graduate study after having gone to the University of Vermont for undergraduate okay. work. Um, and I came to Cornell with, um, with a sort of strange um, baggage um, and inquiry about being there because it was at Cornell that my parents met. My father had been teaching okay. there in the late 60s. He had a position there. And my mother was um, a new graduate student at SUNY Binghamton where she had come on scholarship from England. Mm -hmm. And uh, they met in the slide library at Cornell. Um, and so while I was at Cornell, there was all of that history. Um, you know, I sort of like wondered if I was going to um, split into like, you know, these, this sort of um, uh, primordial sperm and egg sort of situation since it was the place where I was conceived. And by that time, uh, you know, my parents had divorced but every time each of them came to see me they would say oh that's the house where you know where you were conceived and it was it was just a really sort of a, a funny experience but anyway it's a very academic program um I was there as a painter there were um there were some 
professors there who were um, quite painterly painters, including Kay Walkingstick mm-hmm. um, and um, Victor Cord. And I pursued traditional painting on um, stretchers that I built myself and um, and applied lots of gesso to the surface of and really, you know, sort of um, got into the whole traditional approach to oil painting. I learned a lot about different pigments, um, the, the drying times of um, different colors. Um, and I, um, I was very interested in, in a sort of approach to painting, which was a combination of um, landscape and um, body memory all kind of um, working in the same painting. And my approach to painting was really organic and process oriented. So I, I made a lot of um, work in my sketchbooks, but I wouldn't really know what the painting was going to be about until I was in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's similar to how I work um, now. Um, yeah, I was going to say the, the idea of, <clears throat> body memory, for instance, um, is really comes out strong in your current work of the last two or three years. Absolutely. Yeah. You see how that has meandered its way through your entire practice, even before you moved off the wall, let's say. Um, Absolutely. In many ways, yeah. been there. I mean, your, yeah. your paintings, uh, at least the, the significant ones that I remember from early on were quite large and were also quite physical. Yes, yes, they were. I, 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 um, I mean, I suppose after, uh, after having a painting practice that was really firmly rooted in painting for about ten years after graduate school. Um, I, I sort of reached a, a, a place in, um, the making of the work where I felt like I was not, um, curious about, about it anymore. And I was going to the studio and feeling a sort of, um, dread with, um, with, the way that I was making paintings. And I just found it wasn't really exciting to me and I didn't know what to do. I knew that I had to reinvent what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I dedicated myself to making drawings for a year. Um, I bought a lot of paper and I made work in, um, in wet media on paper. So, you know, you could argue that they were paintings on paper I really felt like they were drawings because I was giving myself the freedom to make whatever I wanted, to not edit it. Um, drawing is a wonderful medium because you you can feel like you can throw it away. If it doesn't work, you can feel like um, it's a working sketch. It's an idea. It doesn't have to prove itself the way that... Um, the way that painting sort of comes with this 
legacy of, of having all of this kind of serious and weighty condition around it, drawing really doesn't have that. Um, and so it's very liberating. And I spent a year at, at truly just making work on paper. And that was in about 2012. Uh, it, it probably extended for more than a year, you know, a year and a half. Um, yeah, I often enjoy seeing artists' drawings when I go to their studio and yeah. encourage them to pull out the things that they hadn't planned to show me. Yes. I feel like sometimes there are these little magical moments that might get overlooked or don't seem significant because they are on paper and because it was just an immediate sketch or, or something that wasn't well thought through. But I like those moments and I'm, I'm sure that many artists have that in the studio while they're making work. I totally think so. I think it's like you can find the key mm -hmm. to the map um, yeah. in artists' works. And I, and I really usually enjoy artists' drawings as much or more than the work they feel like is the sort of more finalized work mm -hmm. because it has that feeling of, of um, just freewheeling exploration and and curiosity um so that was really great for me to 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 pursue drawing like that and um at the same time i started looking back to um to the work of my grandmother and my mother who i had by the way written about in my master's thesis mm -hmm. so i had you know in my thesis i had sort of artists that i was looking to like turner you know, mm -hmm. who was working with this really abstract kind of um, exploration of atmosphere. Um, but, but I found that it, it, it was really not honest um, to talk about my um, influences unless I also spoke about what was right in front of me, which was my mother's work and her mother's work. Um, and uh, so I was I was back to thinking about my grandmother and I was living with some of her objects, one of which is right behind me here. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it's a tapestry that she, or it's a weaving that she made on a loom, which my mother made for her out of um, plumbing pipes. So it's a very crude loom that she made it on. And you can see there's all these different colors of cotton um, materials it looks like different types of thread or cotton yeah yeah by no by no means is it like a uh, um a traditional weaving there's a lot of kind of intestinal weird blobby mm -hmm. bits mm -hmm. hanging out of it and then there's also a lot of negative spaces i mean i i, I do think it's really clear that it's a sort of late 1960s, early 70s kind of folky um, um, piece. Uh, but she also made some work that was that showed that she knew a little bit about art history because there's a real connection to Matisse, to, mm -hmm. to, um, to Forms, to Miro. Mm -hmm. um, and although she never went to art school, she, I think she took some sort of extension classes um, at some point. So she had some, some ideas about art school, um, about the art world. 
um, yeah. and she sent her daughters to art school. So she kind of learned a little bit through them too. Um, she also used to make in her backyard silk scarves using a batik method, which is, um, okay. as you know, an Indonesian technique mm -hmm. that's used for textiles. Yep. And she made silk scarves um, using dye and um, the beeswax resist. Uh, and these were things that she wore or made for people um, with great love. And my mother um, in the late 70s and 80s adopted using beeswax um, into her own practice when she made wall pieces by dipping um, a very beautiful Japanese rice paper, dipping the edges into beeswax um, and then overlapping them, creating this really gorgeous material um, that moved slightly. Um, uh, and so I was thinking about that material kind of coming from this, this like coming to me almost as an heirloom. Um, and I started using that technique on paper. And then I graduated into getting a very thin cotton muslin or thin cotton canvas and experimenting with batik and dye on the surface. And that was how I kind of created this newfound um, direction of making work. And it was, it was as if a door had opened and I had escaped this, this feeling of being really oppressed by the history of painting and had walked into a world that felt like it came from um, a craft world, it came from a personal world, it was open to possibility and I could make anything um, and, and really love the making of it. Um, so that was how I first discovered your work was when you were in that process of yes. integrating yes. these techniques um, into your painting, experimenting with materials. I think one of the the pieces that really just uh, blew my mind and uh, drew me in immediately was these figures that are walking through a landscape, and I mean, you don't have a lot of figurative work, but they were suggestions of figures. Yes. And um, on these big sheets of felt, these uh, kind of industrial sheets of felt. And when I was making a lot of work, I had also done some stitching, some embroidery of car images into felt. Um, That's right. That's right. I have, I have one. Yes. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I was just blown away not only by the scale, but the way you really integrated the batik and um, painting and then working with this really lush but also rough surface of the wool. Yes. And, um, yeah, that, that really inspired me. And, you know, it, it also felt like you were uh, doing something very new and original. I hadn't really seen that kind of work in, in other contemporary studios that I had been to. And yeah, it, it felt really unique. Well, thank you. I think, um, I mean, I think it's curious in a way that we, um, that we haven't um, 
expanded our ideas of painting um, into this place. Mm. You know, I think yeah. we still do tend to think about painting as being on a rectangular flat support and um, and that support being, you know, um, arranged as a vertical portrait or as a horizontal landscape. Um, and this kind of idea that that painting is um, a window or or um, a reality or something. Yeah, and that it's supposed to kind of take us somewhere mm -hmm. through its imagery or through its um, surface design. And um, and I all I've really done is take the idea of canvas or material and the idea of um a frame around it or what and the support that it's on and kind of play with those um and still for the most part kept the work on the wall which is the site of painting so i think it's definitely my work is definitely sort of painting with body you know it's like um the, the choice to stuff the work with a soft support, um, creating a volume rather than a rigid support, creating a two-dimensional flat surface um, is, is a really important change. Um, and it does lend a kind of figuration that we're used to seeing in sculpture, a kind of confrontation that we think about with sculpture where um, we, we have a relationship with sculpture where it is, uh, it is, uh, it is our body or a body, a figure. Um, and I think that I've kind of combined this idea of painting on the wall with the idea of the body um, all in one place. I definitely feel that way about these uh, stuffed forms and these shapes that you've created, um, which are particularly visible in this last body of work. But, you know, you went from experimenting with painting and these textile techniques. And then was it about 2014 where you started uh, filling these shapes? I mean, I believe I have a piece from 2015. Yes where you know you're still like structuring them and then it, you move from that to actually letting them become very organic and and more bodily if you will yes yes thank you that's a really important distinction because in between making the work um on a flat surface on the floor and letting it just be material and these latest works where i'm stuffing them there was a period where i was making um paintings on cloth and then sewing a flat but soft substrate in there. It was a flat um, polyester foam, mm -hmm. like, uh, like a yacht cushion, like a flat. Yeah. Um, or like a pillow cushion. of some kind, yeah. Yes. Um, I think you called they, pillow paintings at the time, is that correct? Or I not, certainly or wasn't. Was I well, I, I had pillow paintings. I had soft paintings because they were they were sewn um, 
with white edges to yeah. mimic the way a stretched painting looks on a stretcher. And they came out from the wall flat um, at two and a half inches, which is a sort of sort of standard um, stretcher yeah. bar size yeah. dimension. Um, and to me, they were they were. Um, I mean, they were sort of austere because they were sewn so perfectly um, that they really drew attention to both the soft support and also to the imagery on the surface, um, which was mostly created using a batik um, method. Mm -hmm. um, and I and I made work for a year like that and had a show at Jeff Bailey Gallery. Um, with that work uh, and and then decided that I needed to um, become less rigid in the making of the forms. Although um, ironically, a lot of the forms that I started making that have a more volumetric um, and organic feeling, almost all of them begin with drawings. Um, so they they have, even though they look very organic and as if I've pulled them out of my head, they actually come from either small studies or um, drawings in a sketchbook. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, there is still a little bit of rigidity in the development of the pieces, mm -hmm. not in the way they are actually made. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the shapes, uh, particularly in these large pieces that you've made, um, well, for uh, the current show and your upcoming shows, um, I mean, it requires quite a bit of physical labor and planning to make something on that scale. Um, I think anyone coming into the room will be in awe of, you know, what it takes to, to make an object like that, especially because they are uh, free or without supports for the most part, I believe, right? They're, they're just stuffed soft. They yeah. are, there's no internal skeleton in the work. And so they need the wall to be held up. Yes. Yes. And many of the really larger ones also occupy the floor plane as, as if, um, it is a, um, an object that has its own posture um, and its own sort of, and gravity is working on its posture. Um, and as if it is sort of leaning or slumping or draping on the floor. I like to think about it as if um, they are paintings that have sort of been exhausted by their position mm -hmm. um, uh, of doing so much for us, of giving us this escape. Um, and because of their exhaustion, they have sort of slid down the floor and are resting on the floor in a more confrontational um, way with us. Um, they, uh, in the making of them, I'm often thinking back to these ideas about painting. Um, you know, there's, there's often a use of a framing device um, in the work. So I like to create the outside of the work sort of being stuffed and then play with the traditional kind of figure ground positive negative space 
-hmm. language that comes from painting and create these um, kind of voids that um, are areas where I actually cut out the canvas um, or the muslin mm -hmm. and show you the wall. Um, and so at some points when you're, when you're looking at it, the wall becomes the subject or the emptiness becomes the subject. Um, and at other times you're drawn back to all of the decoration, which is on the surface of the volume. Um, and so, um, you know, that for me is a, is a fun game. Yeah. So the, the other aspect of your show that really stood out to me was the shape and the patterning that you were using. Um, to me, it had a, a, a real sort of um, archetypal, um, almost Native American quality in some way, um, a very kind of uh, earthy um, design to it. Like it seemed to be referencing various cultures maybe. So I was curious how you thought about mm -hmm. it in your painting. And it seemed to me like it, it was distinctly different than let's say the, the, the stuffed sculpture from two years ago or the, the you know, three-dimensional painting mm. three years ago, which uh, to me, yeah. looked, you know, uh, also had pattern, but it was coming from a more minimal language maybe. And this to me seems yes. to be referencing more um, like different cultures. Uh, different ethnicities possibly. Mm. The, for this last show, there were two main, um, well, three main visual um, influences that I was combining. Um, one was I was looking a lot at Matisse and um, the very beautiful capes that mm. he painted on. So they were... It, um, a Matisse-like language of um, of beautiful cut-out shapes um, that were very um, sort of punchy and in different colors. And I was thinking about that really particularly for the piece that I painted that was in the Broadway show called Double double frame it was the piece that was sort of suspended and it had two cutouts yes. very large piece yeah so you it can really see the yes you can really see the influence of matisse mm. there yeah. in that piece um i was also looking at through some of the um tapestries and embroideries that my grandmother made in which she is looking at matisse um and has these uh, very simplified bird-like forms or um, sort of hieroglyphic forms. Mm -hmm. But then the third influence um, is I was, I inherited my father's collection of art history books. And one of the, two, two of the books, one was a, um, a history of um, stone carving on um, Irish, Celtic, Irish sites, hmm. rock sites. Yeah. So these were stone circles um, that were um, located in Ireland and Great Britain and the, the kind of marking that was made on them, which, you know, look um, like many cultures 
uh, sort of early mark making, symbolic glyph making. Um, and then another book that I inherited was about um, early representations of the great mother. Mm. Um, and these also come from a very um, early Paleolithic um, European cultures. So um, idols, feminine idols that were found in France um, and in England and in Austria. Mm. Um, and some of those, you know, just very beautiful um, shapes. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, yeah, those so, are those are interesting connections, and I, I definitely, you know, picked up on that in the work, and was really interesting to see. Um, yeah. I was curious about, um, you know, maybe our listeners would also be interested in like two or three artists who have been important to you in the last few years. I, I always find that intriguing when I'm meeting artists and talking with them about oh, yeah. their influences and things that are inspiring them, you know, maybe very indirectly. It might be music, it might be film, but I'm curious in specific, what, what kind of artists have been kind of giving you impulses lately? Well, I, um, I love the work of Harmony Hammond mm. and particularly um, she made a series of works which were, um, I don't know if they were soft sculptures, but they appeared to be, they were ladder-like forms that rested against the wall. And I remember seeing them because she came to the Vermont Studio Center um, in the early 80s I think and my mother was a resident there and I was visiting my mother so I actually got to do uh, a figure drawing class that Harmony Hammond was leading yeah. uh, and it was my first opportunity to ever draw the figure and I had no idea that the figure was going to be naked mm -hmm. uh, that was a real shock to me because I was actually so um, nervous about being the only, you know, uh, young teenager or tween um, among all of these adult artists. And the other young person who showed up, who was probably, you know, in college, uh, was the model. Wow. And so I was talking to him, but as I was talking to him, he started taking off his clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was just sort of mortified, but also didn't want to you know, give it away that I was such a newbie. Um, and I really enjoyed the class. And Harmony Hammond was very enthusiastic about my work, whatever it looked like, who knows. Um, but then I attended a slide lecture that she gave that night. And in it, she showed some of this work. And I completely forgot about this experience until, uh, you know, maybe 10 years ago, eight years ago, rediscovered the work and realized, oh my gosh, this must have been playing um, playing a part in my search for these, these sort of forms and this alternate um, idea about making uh, sculptural painting or work that occupies the floor and the wall. I also love the work of Linda Bangless. Oh, yeah. um, you know, I, I was a, a late appreciator of Elizabeth Murray's work. Mm -hmm. It took me a long time to kind of wrestle with 
her work, which um, I used to just not really appreciate. Um, and then all of a sudden um, saw it, you know, and went like, oh my God, this is, this is amazing what she's accomplished. You know, this kind of um, creation of this expanded world um, by creating these different structures that she's painting on and yet it's still painting. Um, so those are some of, you know, some of the artists that I think about a lot. I don't tend to look at people's work and try to figure out if my work relates, but I do like to see artwork that really makes me think about things in a different way. I guess I should also say a very obvious influence has been Ava Hess, and in particular, the piece that she made with Saul Lewitt called Hang Up, mm -hmm. um, which is really about the frame. Um, to me, it's about the anxiety of painting. I don't know if that's what it was about um, for her, but it's also confrontational in that the hanging mechanism in that piece comes out into the space of the viewer. And I, again, really like that, that feeling um, of being confronted, you know, with, with an object or with artwork. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I think those are some, those are some important influences or people to me. And so you have a new body of work that is uh, going to uh, show. Can you yeah. talk and share a little bit about that, which will also um, have a catalog? Yes. Uh, very excited to see that. Yes, I'm so excited about it. It's a, it's a show, a solo show in my hometown, um, Burlington, Vermont, where I grew up. And, um, it's in a wonderful nonprofit space called the Burlington Center for the Arts, BCA. Mm. And uh, it is um, a show of work that um, is from the last five or six years. So it really um, kind of demonstrates what has happened in my work from being flat um, two-dimensional painting to this other practice of making um, work which is stuffed and and monumental um, as well as being small scale. Um, so it's really it really shows that development and it's been exciting for me to go back and look at it um, because of you know gathering the work for this show and thinking about how I made this change. Um, I made a piece specifically for it, which is called um, Slant or Slanting Grid. Um, and it is a 16 foot wide or long grid, uh, which instead of being totally rigid and upright is leaning to the right um, and is um, even appears to have three kind of um, feet like projections on the bottom that are running with it. Um, and 
again, it has no bones or interior structure. So it is stuffed with polyester fiber. Um, and it, for me, it was another chance to kind of think about questions that arise for me about the history of painting, the idea of the grid, mm -hmm. the idea of the grid being um, the way that we transfer information sometimes, um, as in a Chuck Close painting, or the grid being um, also a way of creating an underlying structure in the history of abstract painting. Just mm -hmm. um, like Agnes Martin, who worked yeah. exclusively with the grid. Exactly, yeah. So, so the idea that it's this kind of um, underlying skeleton in the history of painting, and I wanted to kind of make it um, really visible and question um, it also. Uh, so I'm really excited about that painting. It's painted in these, um, painted and stained in uh, a variety of neon colors from a kind of really intense neon pink purple. Um, and then it goes through these shifts um, almost in like a rainbow kind of way um, towards a blue. Um, and so I'm really excited to see that, to see that up. And although, um, you know, the show will um, have a different kind of um, opening because of COVID and mm -hmm. all the measures that we're taking, um, people will make appointments and go in and, and then have this relationship with the work that I'm just excited to hear about. Um, I can't wait to see it. And I'm really delighted that Margot Norton wrote the essay for the show. Um, oh, me too. a wonderful curator and um, really, uh, you know, like her writing as well. Oh, me too. I'm so thrilled. It's, it's really an honor um, to have her write about the work. And, um, and yeah, I will, I will send you a copy of the catalog as soon as it is printed. That's great. Well, this was wonderful, Meg. Any uh, closing thoughts or ideas you want to leave us with? Um, it's been uh, great to see this uh, kind of explosion of your work over the last six, seven years. And in that process, you also like gradually organically moved your studio from Bushwick up to the Hudson Valley area. Yes. So yeah, it's been, yeah. been a lot of activity. Yes. Yep. It, it, uh, having a great big, um, barn that I can make work in has definitely, definitely helped. It would be very difficult to make this large scale work in, in my very small Bushwick <laughs> studio. Be very, very tricky. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, I just, um, you know, I'm, I am so excited that, um, you know, that art making is, is still so vibrant and important and necessary. And I love um, being part of an artistic community, um, you know, whether it be online or, um, you know, still being in touch with the community in New York City and also, um, you know, discovering this community of upstate artists, which is really vibrant. Mm. Um, 
you know, I, I'm just still so dedicated to being an artist and to trying to create things that, that move me and I hope move other people. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's, it's been great to be part of your orbit for these last years. Thanks for including me. And for those of you listening that would like to see more of Meg's work, you can go to meglipkestudio.com. Also, uh, Broadway Gallery at 373 Broadway in Tribeca represents your work now, I believe. Yes, that's right. um, Yeah, there's multiple ways to connect with you. Yay. Thank you, John. So nice talking to you. All the best. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Bye. It was really rewarding to see Meg Lipke's most recent exhibition at Broadway Gallery because I have followed her work for a while and I just uh, love seeing the organic nature of her process and then also uh, seeing her, um, you know, dialoguing with more and more ambitious topics and, and artists. So to me, that, that's kind of the ideal trajectory for an artist um, that not only kind of follows their, their passion, but then also is very aware of uh, their surrounding and um, kind of the, uh, the tasks at hand. And mm-hmm. uh, Meg speaks so well about her work, so it's a real pleasure to listen to her. Sometimes I feel like I don't have a lot to really add uh, just because she is so thorough in thinking through her work. Yeah, I definitely got the same sense from her that she is really super, super thoughtful in everything that she does. Um, and yeah, I thought it was really, you know, interesting to hear her connect um, her process to her family history, um, which not, I mean, not a whole lot of artists, I feel like have that kind of um, legacy or something that's passed on to them. Um, So that was really interesting to hear. Well, and often that legacy for some artists I've talked to is a burden. And I believe in her case, it's really empowered her and it it made her think differently about painting from the get-go and I think yeah for sure and has always uh, really enjoyed the the physicality of painting and so to me uh, creating these objects uh, makes a lot of sense in in the way that I think uh, some textile artists that we talked about um, in, in thinking about her practice and the context she in, she's in, um, mm-hmm. artists such as Aaron Riley, it's a, it's a really um, kind of physical practice. And um, yeah, to me, to me that's, that, that's also what, what makes the work uh, so dynamic. It, it is interesting though, because she does, you know, like you were saying, the the legacy that's passed on from her family is not something that she felt was a hindrance to her, but the history of painting was, um, mm. which, you know, like as a painter myself, I, I don't necessarily feel that way, but I, um, it's really interesting to like, to hear the different ways that artists take on 
that responsibility. Um, and, and seeing even how painterly her work is still um, is kind of fascinating. Like I almost, I feel like um, she didn't reference Amy Selman, but there's something very Selman-esque in her work, this kind of, um, I don't know, like animated kind of abstraction. Um, I just, I think that's really cool. Yes, I, I agree. Her, her work is definitely animated in, in the way that she applies paint. I think especially with her latest work, uh, there, again, I go back to this kind of new architectural quality, I would almost say that that's involved in the work where you're really aware of your presence in front of the object. And I think in in many ways, that's exactly what good painting does. It, it, it sort of makes you aware that the painting is a thing and a world in and of itself, yeah. that you're distinctly separate from that. So um, I think increasingly, I feel that way about her paintings on objects. Thanks for checking out Six Degrees of Silvis. I'm the editor of the show, Evan Halter. If you'd like to learn more about John or the guests we have on the podcast, please visit johnsilvis.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>